You're listening to episode 104 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a holistic nutritionist and women's lifestyle coach living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And here on the Room to Grow podcast, I bring you thoughts or guests in areas of nutrition, mindset, lifestyle, and entrepreneurship that will help you gain confidence so you can stress less and elevate yourself to create the life you love. We are not here to do things perfectly, but we are here to learn from each other and to grow with lots of self-love and compassion along the way. Let's get started. Hey friends, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And today we are diving into some topics that I haven't really discussed on this podcast before, and I'm pretty excited about it. And I, I brought on the person that I knew would be perfect to start with some of these issues and her name is Megan Campbell. I'm so excited to introduce her to you. She's a writer, a speaker, and a coach who's been training in a professional capacity for over seven years, breaking down some pretty uncomfortable topics in really tangible ways that make them more accessible and easier to understand. Her aim is to help people hold themselves accountable, remain resilient, and really recognize what's truly important in their lives. She's absolutely dedicated herself to helping people close the gap between who they are, who they feel they have to be, and who they truly want to be. I'm really pumped up about this one because we're opening up a conversation and giving some education around some sticky topics like some of the various forms of emotional abuse to better recognize some of the signs. And the reason why we're talking about this is that a lot of times I'm I'm hearing more and more some examples of things like this happening in people's lives when they didn't realize that that's what was happening. So I really want to open the doors about this to give some education around it so that you might be better able to see it when it's actually occurring. We're going to be diving into things like gaslighting and psychological manipulation. If you don't know what gaslighting is, don't worry, we get into all of that. Uh, How emotional abuse can sneak up on you without you even noticing and breaking down the myth that it doesn't happen to strong, independent people. I think a lot of us and, and myself included, I've often had that in my head that that is, is something that only happens to a particular type of person. And that's, that's just not true. Uh, the differences between boundaries and compromising yourself, uh, taking responsibility and ownership of our own roles and where finding that line actually is too. This is a really fascinating conversation and I'm really excited to be able to bring this to light and to bring someone like Megan in to help break a lot of this down and just make it a lot easier to understand. So really excited about this one. And just want to remind you, don't forget, if you haven't yet grabbed your uh, 14 ways to rock podcast interviews, I do have that all available, totally free guide. I've just interviewed, I've interviewed a lot of guests. I have been an interviewee on a lot of podcasts as well, a lot of other podcasts, and I see what works and what doesn't. And I really wanted to make you a really simple guide to break down the steps that you can take to be super memorable on podcasts, to have uh, interviewers wanting to have you back on, create raving fans, all of these amazing things. And it's not rocket science, but there are big differences between the guests who rock it and the ones who don't. And I see it a lot. So I'm really excited for, for you to grab this one, especially if you are an entrepreneur, this is really important to start getting better at uh, being on podcasts, to start actually looking to be on podcasts. And this can also help with some public speaking things too. If you have a speaking engagement coming up, a lot of these could apply to uh, to public speaking as well. So make sure to go grab that guide and everything about the guide and where to find Megan can all be found in the show notes over at roomtogrowpodcast.com. Let's get going. So over the moon, I have Megan Campbell joining us today. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that we finally got to do this. We've been talking about this for ages. We finally set it up. Oh, I, I'm just, I'm over, over the moon. I'm so thrilled. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do, how you kind of connect with people. Tell us all the things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a little bit about me. I have been a trainer and a facilitator for over seven years. And over about the course of the past two years, I started working in the realm of coaching. So taking my work around interpersonal skills and development outside of workplace specific arenas and bringing them more into people's everyday lives. So I help people with things like communication, navigating conflict, 
getting clear on things like values and boundaries. I've always loved talking to people and this direction has really just brought me to a new level of engagement with this kind of work. I love it so much. That's amazing. I, yeah. So give us an example of, of how you would typically work with, with someone. What's, what's kind of your favorite uh, situation or scenario where you get to work with somebody? Ooh, ooh, that's hard. There's been such versatility in terms of the work I've done with people. I think my favorite work is with a person who, for reasons that are entirely their own, they've lost sight of themselves in the midst of a situation or in the face of something that feels a little bit big or overwhelming and just getting to sit down with them and break those circumstances down into more approachable pieces is so rewarding to get to see them learn about themselves through that experience to help people navigate the way back on their own side. I always find that to be the most rewarding thing that I do. I mean, if I could sum up what I do in one line, it would be that, getting people back on their own side. That's really interesting you, you bring that up, actually, because you and I had talked uh, before we, we set up the interview about getting to know your values as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those kind of tie in a little bit. How do, we, how do we figure out what our values are? Because I think that some people think that they might have an idea. Um, but then when it really comes down to it, when, if, if people find that they're having boundaries crossed a lot, which we're going to get more into boundaries as well, yes. how does that relate to values and how do we figure that out? That's a really good question. I have a whole workshop dedicated specifically to values work because it does take some time. It takes some time. It takes some space. It takes some serious introspection because our values are the beliefs that we uphold as being the most important in our lives. And like you said, oftentimes we can find clarity around our values by doing boundaries work. So starting to figure out when and where do we feel the most compromised? When and where do we find that we feel out of alignment with our integrity? And when I say feel out of alignment, it literally does register in your body there's a discomfort, there's a disconnection. So it's, it's looking at the hard, uncomfortable stuff to gain some clarity about what really matters. I hope that wasn't too poetic, but that's- No, my oh my gosh, no, it was amazing. I, I, there's so much I want to ask you about that because I feel as though a lot of times we don't necessarily figure out what some of our values are until we, until we have something like a boundary crossed. And it's, it's some sort of, issue that comes up in relation to another person. So we can kind of like say all these things to ourselves all we want, but a lot of times I feel like we don't really pinpoint our values until these come up in, in relation to others. Is that, is that something you think is accurate? Oh, I think so, for sure. And I think we have a tendency to abandon ourselves in hardship when mm. we feel as though things are going wrong or things are starting to slip beyond our control we tend to turn on ourselves and values work is doing the opposite. It's being able to take a step back, take some space, take some time to figure out what about this is important to me. What is wrong right now? And taking the time to recalibrate and reassess and to truly determine what the matter is rather than immediately accepting fault or blame or offloading those painful feelings. It's staying on our own side in even moments of hardship and especially in moments of hardship. Yeah. And that's hard to do, right? Like it's easier said than done. And I also like that you mentioned that we can feel it in our body, but I think that so many of us Sometimes we'll go so many years being so used to pushing those feelings down that we've trained ourselves to ignore them. So if somebody has been ignoring those issues for a really long time, how do you, how do you suggest that people tune back into that a little bit more? Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. I think that's an opportunity that most of us have is we either compartmentalize. So like you said, we suppress 
the hard emotions, the emotions that we don't want to deal with or the emotions that we find uncomfortable for varying reasons, we tuck them away and hope that in doing so, we'll be able to ignore them or we do the opposite and we offload. So we project, we cast blame, we experience really heightened emotions that take over and later wind up regretting things that we said or did. And the work of finding that middle ground between avoidancy and aggression, so compartmentalizing or offloading, is hard and it takes time. It takes conscious, serious effort. And like you said earlier, one of the most difficult things about it is it's work that has to be done through moments of hardship. And if we only wait for the big, tough moments to really try, we're never even going to make that effort because it feels too big. It feels too hard. It feels impossible versus showing up in an intentional way every single day and addressing situations, both big and small, so that when we are faced with something that feels a little bit overwhelming, we're in alignment with what's important to us. And, and I really love that you keep bringing this back to moments of hardship because most of us, we're all human. We, we will do just about anything to avoid hardship if we, can, if we can manage to do so. So instead of avoiding it, when it is you know, showing up right in front of us, or if something unexpected happens, or if we, if we realize that our values have been compromised enough that we have to make a decision that will cause hardship, how do we kind of get over that hesitation and mm -hmm. embrace it a little bit more as opposed to trying to sidestep it? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite questions to ask myself is, what about this feels important to me? Because without that clarity, you won't be able to make any headway. Any conversation that you try to have is inevitably gonna go off the rails. If you're met with defensiveness, you're gonna be talked in circles. You need to have that clarity up front about what about this is important to you. What do you need to have heard or understood? And with that clarity, you're able to move through literally anything. Not that that makes it any easier, but it makes it possible. That's a really great explanation actually. Yeah, I, I think that that is so important is I love that question that you ask about what feels important, uh, what about this feels important to me because I, I want to dig more into boundaries because boundaries have been coming up here a lot lately and I think that the part that people struggle with the most is figuring out where to draw those lines. Like mm -hmm. where, where do we even start to figure out what our boundaries look like and how can we relate this back to values? Right. Yeah, boundaries, it's one of my absolute favorite topics because I had to learn about boundaries the hard way and I really resist this idea that the only way to learn is through hardship. I think we can all learn from sharing the learning that we've individually lived. And so for me, boundaries work is very personal. And boundaries, I know we're both big fans of Brene Brown and yes. <laughs> her definition of what boundaries are, which is simply the understanding of what's okay versus what's not okay for you. And the way that I approach them now is with that mindset, that simplicity. And I also like to ask myself, what am I willing to be responsible for versus what am I not? And oftentimes when it comes to boundaries work, you know when it's necessary if, I mean, you know it's necessary if you're a human because it's <laughs> very hard work and we all have our opportunities there. But you know that wherever you're experiencing resentment or burnout, there's probably a compromise of boundaries happening. And what is actually the difference between compromising and boundaries? Because... I think this is always going to come up in, in any relationship, whether it's romantic, platonic, uh, you know, a work relationship, whatever it is, that mm -hmm. we all have to compromise, mm -hmm. but then where's that line? Like, like where, where do we figure out where, okay, if, if this line is crossed, that's way too far, but mm -hmm. how can we compromise potentially, depending on the situation, to meet someone else a little bit more in the middle? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. I think in 
some instances, our values are going to help us define our boundaries, especially those big ones, the ones that can make or break a relationship. And <laughs> I have an example of one of those kinds of boundaries. <laughs> and I'm not sure what kind of picture it paints of me, but it's the truth. So I'll share one of my core values is around loyalty. And loyalty for me, when I define it, includes things like honesty and transparency. And I really value honesty and transparency in my closest relationships. So if I were to think about having a relationship with a person who couldn't be completely upfront and honest with me, if they couldn't be transparent, and the example I use is, imagine I was marrying somebody who was a secret spy, like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, but he's not Tom Cruise because I don't want to go there. <laughs> and he told me, listen, I love you. I love you more than anything on this earth, but I cannot tell you about what I do. I can't tell you where I'm going. I can't tell you what I've done. I could not come to grips with that because as much as I might love them, as much as they might love me, that choice is a complete compromise of a fundamental core value for me. So by him choosing to be loyal to the government or an agency over me, that's something that I know myself well enough to know I would always experience a little bit of resentment over. So if and when he woke up and said, I got to go, I'm on a you know, business trip, I know I'd be like, oh yeah, go enjoy your secret mission. Like that, <laughs> to grips with it. So that might make me come across as a little bit petulant, but truly for me, it's a fundamental need. I need to know that the person who's going to be one of my people through life, they need to be capable of being fully honest and transparent with me about the things that matter. That's part of how I define loyalty. That's so a that's really great example, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Tom Cruise. It's not going to work. But. <laughs> But that's an example of a, a core value that could be called into question. And I really I, like that a lot. It's, it, I, I feel like, sorry, I think I cut you off. I was just going to say, I, I feel as though um, I've been hearing from a lot of people lately about coming up with kind of like three to five sort of top core values and mm -hmm. then establishing boundaries based around that. And of course, each situation is going to look a little bit different. So then maybe that's where you have to figure out where that line of potential compromise is or not, or where you're like, nope, this goes too far. I can't compromise on this any further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You need to get clear about what an encroachment of that boundary looks like while also appreciating the fact that as if they weren't already hard enough, <laughs> boundaries will change from person to person. And I don't just mean from one person to the next because that's inevitable. I mean, your own personal boundaries are going to be flexible based on the other people in your life. So an example of what I'm talking about might be the way that you joke with your friends. You know, maybe you have one friend where based on your history, based on the dynamic that exists between you, you can joke about really personal things. But if somebody else, maybe it's a friend that you haven't had as long, maybe it's a friend of a different gender, whatever the difference might be, a similar joke or way of speaking to one another would suddenly not be appropriate if it were a different person. So boundaries can change based on whoever the other party involved is. They can change in friendships versus relationships, relationships versus family. There's a lot of flexibility and consideration needed when you're doing boundaries work. That's a really great point. And I didn't really think of that before, that it, mm -hmm. it can vary so widely from person to person and that we'll be more accepting of a particular behavior or you know, manner of speaking or whichever from some people more so than others. And it's not necessarily a better or worse thing. It's, it's like this sort of invisible scale that we have that is just different for each person, depending on 
a relationship with them. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's honestly a revelation that I only had recently. And it honestly did come up in the example that I just gave where a friend of mine made a joke that kind of raised my hackles and I had to sit down with myself and get curious about why my response was so different with that person versus another friend of mine where that was just a joke that I could reciprocate and respond to without there being any resentment or questioning. And that was an interesting discovery. And those kinds of conversations are hard to have with yourself because when (laughs) you're getting curious, there's a lot of things that can come up that you might not necessarily love about yourself either. And then it's kind of hard to come to that realization and go, hmm, like, am I just being a hypocrite or <laughs> do I need to change something? Like those, those are the kinds of conversations that I feel like a lot of people avoid having with themselves because they don't want to have to get to that level of discomfort. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And by resisting getting uncomfortable with ourselves, we wind up dealing with so much more discomfort in our day-to-day lives that would otherwise be not avoidable, but more manageable than it currently is. And talk to me a little bit about gaslighting because (laughs) (laughs) you and I, I feel like we're going to have an interesting conversation about this. So I feel like a lot of people don't even really know what gaslighting is, much less kind of fully understand the concept. And I know I didn't uh, until about a year ago. I, I wasn't really aware of of what it was. I knew of the term, but if you'd asked me to explain it, I couldn't really have come up with some sort of definition. So tell us what it is. And then I'd love for you to explain how something like gaslighting can happen to us. Because I I bring this up because it's sort of tied in with like these uncomfortable conversations that we need to have with ourselves sometimes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Gaslighting is, it's insidious. And like you said, I don't think it's something that we talk about enough, but I'm so grateful that we're starting to talk about it more because I believe the vast majority of us have experienced it in at least one arena in our lives, but without the definition, without the understanding, so we can put it into words, it's something that tends to keep us feeling ashamed. And that's because it is a tool of psychological manipulation. So that's what gaslighting is, is psychological manipulation to essentially gain and maintain the upper hand. You want people to question their own sanity so that you can stay in control. So gaslighting is a tactic that is often used by abusive people. And it's different from the very human tendency to manipulate in an effort to self-protect. We're all capable of manipulation. You know, I didn't grow up with siblings, unfortunately, but if I had, I absolutely would have blamed them when I didn't want to be called into question. You know, we can all manipulate. We can all edit and revise and tweak stories just a little bit to make ourselves come across as behaving better than we did. But there's a difference between manipulation with self-protection or self-preservation as the undercurrent and gaslighting, which is manipulation that is extremely malicious. And how, how is it that that can harm someone, the person who is being gaslighted? And I'd love if you could give us sort of an example of how this can not only start, but kind of progress too, so that people can maybe get a better understanding as to what this looks like. Because when we hear about something like gaslighting, it, it sounds so bizarre, right? Like somebody can make you think you're crazy and that you're losing your mind. How does that even happen? And Mm -hmm. I think that, that what people don't understand is that, like you said, it's sort of insidious and it can happen very slowly. So if you have an example of that, I'd I'd love to hear more on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that acknowledgement that it's insidious and it takes time. It's, I've done a lot of writing about emotional abuse because I don't think it's something we fully understand yet, which is why we're still so quick to blame people. I think that comes from a place of wanting to believe that it couldn't happen to us. So that blame is stemming from a place of fear. 
doesn't make it okay. It doesn't negate the impact of shaming people who have endured abuse, but that's the whole other side of the conversation. Gaslighting is something that is designed to work. Psychological manipulation is something that we experience in advertising. Like they've studied this. It works. It's effective. (laughs) We know this. But when it comes to gaslighting, it's especially insidious because it takes place in relationships, especially relationships where there's an element of power dynamic at play. So whether it's parent to children, boss to employee, or in an emotionally abusive dynamic, the person who is abusing versus the person who's experiencing the abuse, there's a shift in the power dynamic where you're already more susceptible to believing or trusting the other person. And over time, with the gradual erosion of gaslighting, you start to believe them more than you do yourself. And that's when it really, really sinks in deep, is when there's that loss of trust with the self. Yeah, I can absolutely understand that. And how, mm. how does lying tie into this? Because I, I love that you mentioned that we can all manipulate because it's so true. We're, we're very quick to point the finger at other people about, you know, you manipulated me or look at, look at him manipulating her or whatever. And we don't like to turn that around because we are absolutely all capable of it. And we've all been guilty of it at one time or another. There's just varying levels, but full blown you know, lying and lying on a regular basis, how, how interconnected with gaslighting is that? And, and how can we kind of recognize it a little bit more? Mm. That's an interesting question. Because with a gaslighter, I do believe that they need to understand what the truth is in order to manipulate it. And I suppose that's where the lie comes in is knowing full well what happened or what was said or what was done and twisting it just askew enough so that the other person goes, well, maybe I was wrong. And I know you asked me for an example and it truly often begins in that way. You can say to somebody, when you said this, it made me feel this way that person's immediate response will be, I didn't say that, or you misunderstood me, or you're always overreacting. So they take what the truth is and they twist it just enough to make you see it from their angle, the angle that benefits their version of the story, the events, their world narrative. That's fascinating. It's really fascinating because I, it, and that is how it can just be eroded and mm-hmm. erode that trust in yourself slowly over time. And I feel like this can be especially seen in very close relationships. Like it can absolutely happen uh, in places like the workplace and stuff as well. But I feel like romantic relationships and or potentially like a parent-child relationship, I feel like that is probably where it's most likely to show up the most often. Oh, for sure. Yeah, whenever there's a little bit of a power dynamic, and usually in an intimate relationship, that's where my experience of gaslighting occurred. And when it began, it began as all healthy adult relationships should, which is both people in the same place at the same time who are treating each other as equals, who are treating each other with respect, who are opening themselves up slowly but surely to the same level of vulnerability so that you can learn about the other person. You're trust building, you're building intimacy. But when you're dealing with somebody who is abusive, they're taking all of that information and turning it into intel that they'll later use against you. And that was a revelation that I had probably mm, close to half a year after I got out of a very abusive dynamic was the realization that, my God, he managed to dismantle me because he used all of that vulnerability against me. He took all of those vulnerable, trust-building, intimate moments 
and he wielded them against me. So it was the use of the vulnerability, the trust and the intimacy that needs to exist in a functional relationship and weaponizing it against the other person. And you truly cannot see it coming. You know, most of us can't fathom the callousness required to do that to another person, but it happens and we need to talk about it and actually accept the fact that people are capable of this because the more that we stay silent, the more that we are silenced by shame, the less likely it is that people will start to recognize it when it's happening to them. And that makes me very sad. I, I agree. And, and I'm, this is, I know you and I had talked again, like before we even talked about uh, doing this interview was that we had discussed how important it is to increase the education around emotional abuse because I, you know, up until like a year ago, like I didn't even know what the term meant, much less what it, what it could potentially look like or anything like that. And there's so many other uh, facets of emotional abuse that when, when it's something that does happen slowly over time, they, it doesn't leave physical marks. We all know what physical abuse look like, looks like, exactly. but we don't know what emotional abuse looks like because it's hidden. And oh, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's happening very slowly, very quietly. It's something that you don't recognize coming. And what's most interesting to me is that the people that I have known who have experienced emotional abuse have been some of the most independent, strong mm -hmm. Like, yes, like strong, amazing humans that I know. And, and I think that we have this twisted sense of emotional abuse in our heads that it only happens to the weak. It only happens to people who, you know, can't stand on their own two feet or anything like that. And that could not be farther from the truth. No, no. If you are a human being who experiences shame, and that's all of us, you can be emotionally abused because it's somebody using that against you, somebody turning your own vulnerabilities against you and validating your deepest, darkest fears about yourself. And it's truly like being poisoned. That's what I eventually likened it to, was of all the things I wound up using the analogy of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And the only example I could think to illustrate what that's like is from the sixth sense. <laughs> Do you remember the sixth sense? Yes. Okay. Do you remember the storyline with the little girl who passed away and they found out that her stepmother had been slowly poisoning her soup? Oh, oh my God. Yes. I, I didn't remember that until you just said it, but yes, I do remember that. <laughs> out of all the things, it was like Grey's Anatomy and the sixth sense. Those are my <laughs> By proxy, but that's the closest thing I can find to an effective analogy of what it's like to be abused by somebody in an emotional way is to fill the role of somebody in your life that you trust, that you respect, that you love, a person that you're supposed to feel safe with. And from that position, it's no wonder why or how they're capable of doing what they do. And we need to stop talking about abuse in the terms of it's something that happens to a certain person or only certain people do. No, it can happen to anybody. And the more that we uphold those archaic, problematic notions about the kind of person who can be abused, the more we're gonna be keeping a whole bunch of people silenced by shame the shame that maybe it was their fault, that maybe they could have done something differently when in reality somebody did something to them and it's such a disservice to pretend that it's anything but that. Well, this, is, this brings up such an, inter an interesting dichotomy for me because on the one hand, you and I are, are big, like you said, big fans of, of Brene Brown and big proponents of sharing your stories and not allowing that shame to suck us in, like let yourself be vulnerable and all of those things because shame can't survive being spoken. And, and yet when we are vulnerable in our most intimate relationships where it should be emotionally safe to do so, there are times where that then gets turned and used against us. So I think that what I, what I really want to 
drill into here is how, how do we learn more about this from the standpoint of using it not to distrust people, but to trust mm-hmm. ourselves more? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm just going to keep sending people to Brene Brown because something that helped <laughs> so much was her explanation that you need to gain a lot of clarity around who deserves to witness your vulnerability. You know, who deserves to hear those stories that might otherwise cause you shame? Who are those people who have earned that trust and earned that respect? And to go back to the earlier conversation around boundaries, that is something that needs to be upheld. You know, when I trust you with this information, that is vulnerable, that is sacred, that is something that nobody has the right to weaponize. And you discover quickly people's character if and when they toe the line or cross the line or say or do something hurtful or harmful. Because again, we're all people. We're all going to do that. We're all going to say the wrong thing. We're all going to do the wrong thing. We're all going to fuck up. Can I swear? I just oh, did. please. Cross <laughs> lines. <laughs> we're all going to push boundaries 99% of the time unknowingly. We're all going to do that, but you discover so much about a person when you tell them that they have. And that's where you'll find out pretty much all that you need to know about the people that you're engaged with in any relationship. How do they show up when you tell them they've hurt you? How do they respond when you point out where the line is? and help them understand where and how they just crossed it. How do they respond to those conversations? Not that if they reject it or get defensive, they're a monster. That's not the reality, but they might have some more work to do before they're capable of engaging with you in the relationship that you want. And that's just the reality. And I always come back to when, when you do tell someone that a boundary has been crossed or something like that, and, and that takes you know, the inner work, like you can't expect other people to do that for you. It was like you said, you have to kind of get quiet with yourself and figure that out on your own. Then it it has to come then with changed behavior, assuming that that other person feels some remorse, or at least tells you as such, they apologize or whatever. Then That has to be followed by changed behavior, or it is continuing to be a a manipulation. Oh, a hundred percent. I have another workshop that's dedicated specifically to gaslighting. And I'm so glad you brought that point up because I think it's the most important piece for people to take away is, you know, you get to decide how many times people cross the line before you realize that you're just tolerating bad behavior. You know, Mm. you teach people how to treat you. That's very, very true. And in this current day and age, we need to stop accepting sorry as an apology and start expecting a change of behavior because sorry is not enough. It has never been enough. We need to see the change, the conscious effort, the deliberate action. Just saying, gee, I'm sorry. That's not enough. That's not going to fly anymore. And, and it's interesting you say that because I didn't really realize until probably the last, probably the last couple of years mm-hmm. that I seem to have this very innate sense of what a true apology constitutes. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, I was a little bit confused about the change behavior part, <laughs> but I still always had major rules about, you know, I wouldn't, I would never apologize or say sorry unless I actually meant it. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't just say sorry just to placate someone. If, if I was trying to placate someone, then I would still have an argument with them or whatever, as opposed to just saying a meaningless sorry. Because I expect of myself to change my behavior if I'm going to apologize. And if I'm not at that point yet, then I'm not going to apologize because it doesn't mean as much. But for some reason, I think until like probably in the last year or two, I wasn't holding others to the same standards. And that was a big realization because I knew what I felt a real apology was, but there were people close to me who didn't seem to have that same understanding, but I was tolerating it for a very long time. And it wasn't, it it wasn't working very well for me (laughs) because then it just builds resentment. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. 
No, thank you for sharing that because that's something that I can relate to 100%. You know, we, I work a lot around conflict resolution and how to handle and navigate conflict for that very reason because the majority of us just approach conflict either with the mentality of, I just want this to be over or the mentality of, I'm in this to win. And both of those can be quite destructive. We don't have healthy, responsible, respectful conflict modeled for us, which is such, such a shame because healthy conflict is a necessary, mandatory, imperative part of any functional relationship. How you show up for each other in disagreement and discord, it matters. It matters more than almost anything else. And we don't get to see conflict, not growing up. So not through our formative years, I, I'm speaking for myself, but I also, I think I'm speaking on behalf of quite a few people as well. <laughs> of us didn't grow up getting to watch our parents engage in conflict. We might've got to see them fight. We might've seen them disagree. We might've seen the ramifications after the fact, whether it was your parents stonewalling one another or whatever else their go-to behavior was, or maybe we would just see the gradual return to some semblance of normalcy, but we rarely got to see conflict from beginning to end. We rarely got to see the I'm sorry and the meaningful apology and the change of behavior. And it's no wonder, I mean, our parents and previous generations, they didn't grow up understanding what healthy conflict looked like. That's something we've only just started to talk about now. But we're in a day and age where we can talk about these things. We can uphold these expectations. And it's okay. It's okay to uphold expectations. You know, people talk so much about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness. And I remember being asked that regarding my abuser. Do you forgive him? And my answer eventually was, well, holy shit, I forgave him a hundred times. I forgave him every single time he transgressed. I forgave him every time he said or did something that impacted me horrifically. I forgave him and it didn't change anything. It didn't. And I had to get to a place of acceptance versus a place of forgiveness because it didn't matter how many times he said he was sorry, the behavior never changed. And that's something we need to start focusing on more now. And I think the more global example of that is with any and all issues regarding Time's Up and Me Too. You know, you can say that you're sorry, you can say that you're gonna do better, but until you do it, we're going to remain in reserve. And first of all, thank you for, for sharing all of that because that's something that's very close to your heart and I really appreciate you um, bringing that up. And when you mentioned the forgiveness piece, the other part of that that was triggered for me was I, some, someone, someone told me this recently and I can't remember for the life of me who it was. So I would, I would give credit where it was due if I knew, but I, I cannot remember who said this. Someone said to me, you can't have the forgiveness without the fuck you. And I was like, hell yes. I'm like, because we live in like this new age. Sometimes it feels like new age woo woo bullshit because I love it. I'm all about the woo. I'm all about like the enlightenment and all of those things. But sometimes you just need to have some healthy anger before you can get to a true sense of forgiveness as well. And I just thought that that was a really great thing to say because especially if if it's somebody who has experienced emotional abuse or years of gaslighting or lying or anything like that you're not going to get to forgiveness immediately because you have been forgiving for so many times over and over and over again like you brought up and you've probably been shoving down your very healthy and well-earned anger for an exceptionally long time and the more you do that, it's just going to eat you alive. So you have to kind of let it out a little bit and be able to experience the fuck you before you can get to the forgiveness point. <laughs> yes. Oh, anger. I have a <laughs> wonderful relationship with my anger now, whereas before we never talked. You know, anger was something that I would either suppress or offload. 
I never gave it the space to actually communicate what it was there to tell me. Because it's something that we, especially as women, are taught to reject or resist. It's something we're taught to be ashamed of. And it's not. It's a necessary, healthy part of the human spectrum of emotion. We need to experience anger. And that doesn't mean you need to experience it outwardly. It doesn't mean you need to throw things and scream at people and call character into question and call people names. It's not that. It's being able to sit with it and find out why it's there. Why did you show up? Why are you here in response to what just happened? To find out what it's there to convey so that when you speak, you have anger on your side rather than compartmentalizing it or just letting it take the reins, which is inevitably going to wind up <laughs> a little bit destructive. And I think that, that that anger is also a really great trigger point to indicate with, with you when a boundary has been crossed, which, and, which will also help you better figure out your value system as well. <laughs> this all comes sort of full circle. <laughs> things that make you angry. Again, knowing that that's not a failure, that that is a natural response to a certain set of circumstances. What makes you feel angry? Why? What about that is important to you? It's so valuable to give yourself the space to process emotion. And we really don't allow ourselves to do that. We haven't been taught to do that. That hasn't been modeled for us. And we've done us all such a disservice. And I'm glad. I think that now, I mean, I don't have children. I have a few friends and a few coworkers who have children. And from what I hear, I think that now we're starting to raise children with a little bit more emotional awareness. And I hope that we're raising a generation of people, especially men, who are more capable and willing to emotionally manage. And a whole generation of people who are going to have a new level of expectations around what emotional management looks like, what they can and should expect from the people in their lives. And that is so heartening a thought. That makes me happy to hear because <laughs> the fact that for so long we didn't talk about emotions beyond what you might have seen Mr. Rogers exploring. I think we should all just revisit Mr. Rogers as adults <laughs> because a whole other conversation we've done society such an immense disservice and i'm so glad that now we're starting to undo it i hope by communication communicating emotional intelligence with younger generations what it looks like what it feels like how to practice it mindfulness you know all of those things it's so 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 important it it absolutely is and it's it's just it's funny you say that actually about that we're raising a more emotionally um well, we're, we're raising children with more emotional adeptness, I guess, because yeah. I think I just mentioned that on, on the podcast a few weeks back because my therapist basically said exactly that. She said, we, this is the first time essentially that we have had a generation that is raising children with emotion. And I, mm. I thought it was fascinating because it's just opened so many doors and it's kind of like what you were talking about before. I certainly never uh, saw my parents. I, I didn't see my parents have a ton of conflict to begin with. And when I did, it was exactly what you described that I would see them get angry, but I would never see it resolved. I'm not yeah. sure that they ever did fully resolve their issues because they ended up splitting up. But <laughs> it's, it's just so fascinating that I think that a lot of us, especially in, in romantic relationships, especially in newer romantic relationships, panic if there's conflict because yeah. we're, we're like, oh shit, this, this means we're doomed. And I, I absolutely have experienced that before. And what I quickly ended up realizing was that not having any conflict was a lot harder in the long run. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting to see because it's, it's just sort of this 180 that I think that we're experiencing in so many different ways. And we're really seeing the value in conflict and talking about these things more openly and being more vulnerable, um, just as long as obviously that vulnerability doesn't get used against us in the form of, yeah. of gaslighting. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And there's been this long term upheld belief that conflict is where 
connection goes to die. You know, that's where connection is severed. That's where trust is lost. That's where we diminish respect. When in fact, it is a place where so much more trust and connection can be built. If only you show up in alignment with your integrity, you know, what are my intentions here and how will my actions reflect that? And we need to get better at fighting. Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I, how, how do we do that? How do we get better at fighting? Like, especially if, if we're maybe in a relationship um, that is somewhat conflict free, which I'm not saying it's a good thing to be fighting all the time, <laughs> but it does help to kind of establish where the lines are and the, and the boundaries within the relationship, I think as well. Yes. Yep. I think we need to get better at giving ourselves time. And I say that because when conflict arises, we do panic. That is our immediate go-to. And it is completely understandable knowing that for human beings, for us, the importance of connection overrides almost everything else. That's what motivates us. That's what drives us. So the, the sense that connection might be lost or damaged or severed, it's panic inducing. It feels life-threatening. You know, when we go back to that kind of like reptilian brain reactivity, it does feel like something is at stake that is life threatening. So first of all, it's the acknowledgement of that. It feels scary. And as a result, we tend to get really reactive and reactivity can either be, I'm going to get defensive, you know, cause now you're questioning my character and I'm going to react and defend versus the opposite end of the spectrum, which is, I just need this to be over. Even if it means that I'm going to accept fault or blame that isn't mine, I just want them to say it's okay. Even if it means I'm apologizing for something that I don't believe I need to be sorry for. And if we don't take a step back, those two extremes kind of become the go-to ways that we navigate conflict when it feels scary versus being able to take a step back and get clear. So gain some clarity because something's not a problem unless it feels important enough to be a problem. So what is important about this to you? You know, what's important? And then figure out what the actual behavior is. Cause that's another thing we have a tendency to do is we call character into question quickly. And if you engage in conflict in a way that paints another person as the villain to your victim, that's not going to go well. Nobody wants to be the villain. You're not going to be able to see eye to eye if you're coming out of the gates with a certain kind of mentality. So get clear about the behavior versus the person. What was the behavior that made you feel a certain way? And what was the impact? And then again, that important piece, what do you need them to know? Why are you telling them this? Is it because you don't feel safe when a certain thing happens? Is it because you don't feel heard when a certain thing happens? What do you need them to know? And with that clarity engaging in conflict, you're less likely to have it be derailed by defensiveness or an escalation, which can happen when you're questioning character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, to, to bring it back to something like gaslighting as well, I, I know that you mentioned responsibility in, in relation to conflicts too. Where is our responsibility in something like gaslighting? Because even though it's, it's something that's being done to us, mm-hmm. how can we sort of take ownership of our role in that? In that? Hmm. That's a good question. And, it's and, to, and to better protect ourselves, I guess, yeah. like at least moving yeah. forward. Yeah, that's the thing is when we think about ownership, I want to be so clear about the fact that when it comes to abuse, that is one of those instances where someone has done something to you. Um, It's like a car accident where you were abiding by the laws and somebody sped through a red light, you know, and for a long time, I hesitated to talk about the ownership piece because it reminded me of conversations that tend to crop up around sexual assault where we'll give women advice like, don't do this, don't do that. 
make sure you always do this versus that. Okay, sure. Like, yes, it probably is a good idea to not leave my drink unattended in a busy, dark bar. That's, that's fine. But that's not the root of the issue here. And we can't just be addressing the people who are victimized without addressing the root cause. The fact that there are people who do this and are rarely held accountable in the way that they should be. Because truly, when it comes to your ownership, it's ooh, recognizing that what happened to you happened. And this is why I think talking about it is so important because if we don't talk about it, if we don't define it, if we don't keep putting it into words, it's so hard to recognize it when it's happening to you. Because to go back to our earlier analogy about it being like a poison, at first it might just be feeling sluggish and then you might get an upset stomach and you can't quite pinpoint what it is, but you know something's going on pay attention when you know that something's not right. And I dedicate a lot of space in that session around gaslighting to that particular conversation, the things to pay attention to. And what we always come back to is the sense of, am I crazy? Am I losing my mind? Because if after a conversation or a disagreement with your partner, a family member, a friend, an employer, you literally feel like you might be losing it, the chances are high that some form of manipulation was at play. And at the very least, you weren't being heard. The other person wasn't being respectful of or exhibiting any interest in your point of view. So it's more, I think it's on all of us to just be talking about these things more, to be giving it the language so that we can have these hard conversations because my God, it is so hard to recognize when it's happening to you because it's designed to be effective. It's designed to work. And really the most important piece is how you take care of yourself after the fact. And, you know, we talked about sharing our shame and that doesn't mean you have to publicly broadcast it. You don't have to expose your vulnerability for everybody to see it might just be in quiet conversations that you have with yourself, journaling, speaking to a very close friend who you know is on your side and that you trust wholeheartedly. The self-care after the fact and the reestablishment of self-trust is the most important piece of ownership. It's the most important action we can take. Uh, after circumstances where something like gaslighting has been at play. I couldn't agree more. I, yeah. I, yeah. What a beautiful explanation, especially the part about the ownership is that mm. when we, we do have to acknowledge abuse. And, and I also love that you compared it to like sexual assault against women and stuff, because I mean that <laughs> we could talk for days about that conversation. It's, it is so interesting because um, I think for, for anyone who wants to take as much responsibility as they can, um, it, it can be empowering, yeah, to a degree, but then at what point are you taking too much onto your own shoulders? And there, there is such a fine line, and, and I, I also really agree with sharing your story, and even if it's you know, to yourself. Like it doesn't have to be to a crowd of people. It can just be to yourself and just acknowledging what has occurred. And mm -hmm. there's huge power in that. I mean, rather than just keeping stories a secret and burying them and trying to forget they ever happened, mm -hmm. a lot of us have that instinct, but there's, I mean, there's so much power in, in sharing and being a little bit more open and then learning from each other. Yes. Yeah. I feel like I talked a lot because I'm still wrapping my head around what I'm trying to say. So in an effort to be more succinct, to go back to that analogy about don't leave your drink intended in a bar. Yes, it is helpful and important that we be sharing those kinds of tips in general. You know, that information needs to be out there. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be conversations we're having with women, especially, but people when they're very young, you know, is 
all of those pieces around self-protection and self-trust and self-awareness, yes, that's important. But when people try to have that conversation when something devastating has happened, like if you try to tell somebody who has experienced something horrible, well, this is how you could have prevented it, that's not being helpful. You're being an asshole. That's not the time or the place for that particular conversation. After the fact is where that self-care piece comes in, you know, knowing that something has happened to them that has likely caused them to experience a great deal of self-doubt, potentially some dissociation, definitely a separation from the self and the intuition, and a lot of care and gentleness is required at that point in time. And truly what we can all do is just acknowledge that this happens and it can happen to anybody. And by pretending that it can't or that it is always preventable, it's as unhelpful as pretending that car accidents are completely within your control. No, we can do the best we can to protect ourselves. And with that being said, there also needs to be the recognition that sometimes things happen to people and we need to be very mindful and gentle after the fact. Um, Cause again, I know that that, that tendency to say, Oh no, you can always maintain control. You can always prevent bad things. That stems from a place of fear. I don't want bad things to happen to me. But that is such a devastating and more harmful thing for somebody who has experienced something hard or unfathomably cruel to hear after the fact. So we need to accept that hard things and bad things do happen and we need to get better at supporting people in the recovery after the fact. Like I don't know if that's more succinct, but it's, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because it's one of those things that we want so desperately to be able to control, but we have to recognize the fact that we can only do the best that we can. And I think in order for us to all be capable of doing our best, we need to be sharing a lot of education and information we need to be working on our boundaries, understanding our values before they're compromised. You know, this is not a lesson I want one more person to have to learn the hard way. And that's why I do the work that I do. And you've just been so generous today with, with sharing so much of this. And I just think that you have such a powerful message to share. I want to make sure that everyone can connect with you, Megan. So let us know where, where we can find you. Oh, thank you. Well, I love Instagram. I love having conversations on Instagram. So you can find me there. And my handle is Megan Talks. And I know it's written down somewhere around this recording, but it is Megan with an H. So <laughs> A-N Talks. I always, whenever I go to Starbucks, I tell them, my name is Megan and it's spelled like Meg Han Solo. Like Han Solo. Ah. <laughs> Only one person has ever written Meg Han Solo on my cup. And I was so delighted. <laughs> I'd be delighted too. That's awesome. <laughs> so you can and, find me on Instagram and the website is the same, megantalks.com. And tell us about your workshops as well. Yeah. So the workshops can be offered in person. I'm based in Vancouver. I occasionally visit Toronto. Um, so just follow me on Instagram to find out when and where those are cropping up in person. But all of them can be delivered remotely. Um, I don't always like to wear pants. I know a lot of people prefer to not. So if you like to do work through <laughs> Skype or Google Hangout, everything I do can be done over the phone or over the computer. And I do workshops that cover the topics that we've talked about. So the important, almost the preventative work, things like values, boundaries. I do a workshop that is mainly geared for um, people who identify as women because this world tends to mislabel assertiveness as something else when you identify as a woman. So I have a whole workshop dedicated to assertiveness. Um, that understanding of what exists between avoidancy and aggression. I offer workshops on things like gaslighting, as well as communication. So communication ranging from 
public speaking to conflict resolution and how we can show up with more clarity and intention when things feel hard or overwhelming, whether that's because conflict is scary and has never been modeled effectively for us or because we have to speak in front of a hundred people and that is <laughs> scarier than death for some people. So lots of different stuff to talk about. Well, you do such a beautiful job. I can't wait for everyone to go and find you and to check out your workshops. And I love your Instagram too. You have a, a kind of an unusual Instagram and I really, really enjoy it. That was how we connected. There was over Instagram. <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of a funny Instagram. I like to highlight people I respect and admire while at the same time, you know, <laughs> posting things like memes <laughs> so we can learn, learn about really, really hard, shitty things, but in a way that we can still laugh at, you know? I think that the best way to learn is through conversation and conversation's only worth having if you can laugh with the people you're talking to. So I do like the occasional meme, I'll admit. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So I just have one more question for you. If you could offer people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say read Brene Brown. Um, <laughs> hey, that's good advice. advice, <laughs> And I do sincerely recommend that. It's an interesting question. I want to say, trust your gut, you know, trust your instinct. But at the same time, I'm fully aware of the fact that I was raised by a mother who told me that as often as she possibly could, but it took me some hard experiences to learn the value of my own instinct and my own innate inner wisdom. So really what I would say is be gentle with yourself through hardship. Don't abandon yourself through hardship. Use that as an opportunity to learn something and to gain some assuredness around your own resiliency. You know, don't turn away from hardship. It's an inevitable part of life. Such good advice. Oh my gosh, what a great way to wrap up. Thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so lovely to speak with you and I really appreciate you giving me the time. Oh my gosh. No, I've been excited about this interview for ages. So I'm thrilled that you made the time and I, I love all of these juicy topics we discussed. So we'll have to have you on another time. <laughs> love that. I know I'm going to listen back and immediately go, oh no, that's not, no, I could have said this. I could have. So yeah, I'm looking forward to another one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We're back every Tuesday and Thursday. So make sure to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if this episode touched you in some way, or there's somebody that you know that needs to hear it, make sure to share it with them. Take a screenshot, share it on social media, and make sure to tag me over at Emily Goff Coach because I would absolutely love to thank you. For anything referenced in today's episode, make sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com and all of the details can be found over there. <laughs>